Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome to Coronapod. In this show, we're going to bring you nature's take on the latest COVID-19 developments. And we'll be speaking to experts around the world about research during the pandemic. We're entering a new era now. We have new COVID strategies. There's some new unknowns and we've got a vaccine. Hello and welcome to Coronapod. I'm Noah Baker and joining me is a voice you may not have heard, Nature's America's Bureau Chief, Lauren Wolf. Lauren, how are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me. So people that have listened to the Nature podcast may well have heard your voice before, but this is your first time on Coronapod. So just before we get going, tell us a little bit about who you are, what it is that you do at Nature. Uh, Well, I am, as you said, the America's Bureau Chief, which means that I am responsible for news in the Americas. So that includes Canada, South America, North America, and I have a team of reporters here in the U.S. that covers all things science that you need to know about and science policy. Science and science policy, and of course, also COVID, which falls squarely into that. Yes, we have not gotten away from all of that COVID coverage just yet. We are still very much in the thick of it. And the story we're going to talk about this week is actually a kind of a follow-up story from a story that was written by a freelancer, Mike Marshall, many, many, many months ago, and was one of our most read stories from the pandemic, actually. It was so much interest in this story that we needed to do a follow-up. And that's about this symptom, this word that I don't think anyone in sort of general society knew about until COVID came around, which is anosmia, this loss of taste and smell that was associated specifically with the alpha variant. We'll talk more about that in a minute. Tell us, what was it about this that you think really struck with people, this kind of symptom, and why was it that you wanted to do a follow-up story? I mean, I think it probably struck with people just because uh, even if you don't have total smell loss that lasts for months and months, most people, at least early in the pandemic, who had COVID had some smell loss and that could last for a few weeks. It could last days, but you know, I think on average for some people it was lasting for a few weeks and it cleared up for most people after a month. But for some people it didn't clear up. It took months and some people unfortunately it's never cleared up for. Absolutely. Now this symptom sort of on the face of it, when we kind of put this in the context of the number of people that have died and been less disabled by the pandemic and by COVID around the world, it's you know, you you would be forgiven perhaps to thinking, well, this is just a little minor thing, losing a sense of smell. But given how incredibly widespread it was, and also that this is a symptom that followed on from even very mild cases of COVID, 
and really has held on for a very large number of people, there's a really significant cumulative impact here. I mean, some of the numbers that are in Mike's stories really do, they really grab you. And it makes me think again about how I should think about loss as well. I mean, I had a look at, you know, all the coverage we've done because it's it's hard, right? There's all these different populations for whom smell loss has been an issue. And so, you know, I've seen numbers everywhere from 40% or higher of people who have had COVID had some kind of smell loss at some point, right? That doesn't mean that they had smell loss for weeks or months, but they had some smell loss. Then when you get to how long it took for that to clear up, for most people, you know, 70 to 80% of people, it clears up in a month. But then you still have this percentage of the population 30, maybe 40% of people who had some smell loss or partial smell loss, and it goes on for some months. And then you get down to an even smaller population, maybe less than 10% of people who it just doesn't clear up for, who've had really severe cases. Sometimes it even happens for people who had mild cases. There's so much that we don't know about it yet, but there's a small percentage of the population. In one study, it was maybe 7% of the 100 people that were infected who after a year still had total smell loss, which is what you were talking about, this anosmia. And so when you kind of meter that out and look at it in terms of how many millions of people have had COVID across the world and you kind of extend it, you're talking about a pretty significant number of people who this affects. Absolutely. I have to say my stepfather is one of those people. He had COVID almost a year ago and he still hasn't got his smell back. I mean, there are little bits, it's come back in a bit, but in the places it's coming back, it's 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 not the same. Like he's smelling things differently and it's all a bit of a confusing thing from him. Yeah, that's so interesting. I mean, I've I've read numerous accounts of people who have had this. And so it sounds like maybe what he has is parosmia. So for people who have some sort of partial smell loss or mostly smell loss, and then it starts to come back, um, they start to smell things in a different way. You know, something that might've smelled like delicious barbecue now smells like burnt rubber. And again, there's like a whole field of study looking into why this is, but it's it's completely fascinating. But also I think what you hit on is that it can be really distressing when you can't taste food, when you can't, I don't know, just normal things that are associated with memories. It can be, it can be depressing for some people and also dangerous. I think for some people, you know, who might not be able to taste that food is spoiled or that there's a fire near where they are, if they can't smell that, then actually Actually, they can be in danger too. Indeed. I actually had a dear friend from university who had a traumatic brain injury and lost her sense of smell. And she burnt down her kitchen because she just couldn't smell that there was a fire happening. You know, there's scary things can happen. So in this conversation, we're going to try to dig into where this comes from, right? So COVID is a respiratory disease that affects many different systems across the body, including the lungs in large part. And of course, it in many cases gets into the body through the nose. And so there are lots of theories. And over time, scientists have been winnowing down what might actually be the cause of these symptoms and starting to discuss what might be treatments. Tell us how far a scientist got, what are the kind of core focuses of kind of hypotheses, I suppose, for what is caused these smell symptoms? Actually, pretty early on, they figured out that it wasn't so much attacking the neurons in your nose. So the olfactory, they call these the olfactory neurons, the ones that detect the volatile molecule, the smell, if you were, and then sends the signal into the brain 
they kind of realized early on that it wasn't those neurons that were being damaged. It was these set of support cells that kind of form a framework around these neurons and kind of feed them with nutrients that were being attacked. Because those cells, they have these receptors on the outsides of them called ACE2. We've probably heard a lot about that in the pandemic too. We've all become armchair virologists. But these ACE2 receptors are the ones that the coronavirus attaches to and helps to infect cells. So what they saw in the beginning was that the neurons didn't have a lot of those receptors, but these support cells uh, called sustentacular cells, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, had a lot of this receptor. And that has kind of stood up over time. You know, that was one of the early studies. So to start with, we have these neurons that aren't able to function properly because they're not being kind of fed the nutrients and things that they need to be from the cells surrounding them because those cells are being attacked by COVID. Now, over time, more studies have been done to try to get a kind of a more nuanced picture of what's going on. And there have been further theories beyond this initial theory, which does seem to stand up. This isn't invalidating this initial discussion about sustentacular cells. It's just furthering the picture, adding more detail here. What's come next? Yeah, so one of the things that we just wrote about was going back to the neurons. So it's not that there's nothing wrong with the neurons. And in fact, scientists looked at neurons in people who had had COVID and saw that the nuclei in these neurons were kind of scrambled in a way that they shouldn't have been. So normally these neurons have their nuclei, that's kind of where all the DNA is held, if you recall from Cell Biology 101, compartmentalized in a way that allows these neurons to express a high level of receptor on the outside of them that enables you to smell, that enables you to detect volatile molecules. And so each neuron, this is kind of cool, detects its own molecule. So, you know, you can imagine in your nose, you want to smell this coffee molecule, you have one neuron that does that, right? And so when they looked at these neurons, they saw that the nuclei were all kinds of scrambled in a way that would not allow them to express these receptors at high levels. So you have these support cells that aren't working properly, but then you do have some effects on the neurons themselves. These studies looked at autopsied neurons. I just love the idea that people are going in and autopsying cells and finding these scrambled um, nuclear architecture within them, which is just really fascinating. This kind of the level of detail that researchers are going to to get to the bottom of this question. Yes. In fact, a lot of the studies that have been done to look at some of these, not even just smell, but effects of COVID on the brain have been done on autopsy tissue and cells. And that's how we've gotten a lot of sense of, of what is happening in these situations. So these are both kind of biophysiological explanations, but there's also people that have been looking into potential genetic propensity. I think this is quite common whenever you have something that seems to be affecting a percentage of the population, but not necessarily everyone. And so there have also been studies looking at mutations or genetic variation that is associated with this symptom. And that's also turned up some potentials there, right? Yeah, it's another area that's really interesting. It's like, why do the people that lose their smell for more than a year, why why them and why not why not more people? And so, you know, generally when something like that happens, we do look at genetic factors. And so there has been a study that was just reported early this year where a research team found a genetic mutation that was associated with a greater propensity for this smell loss. And they saw that a single change in in one base in the DNA in one place was found in these two overlapping genes. 
And so, you know, what do you do with that information at this point? It's, it's like looking for a needle in a haystack. But what they've noted so far is that these genes, they encode proteins that help to remove the odor molecules, those volatiles from your nose after you've smelled them. And so, you know, this could give us an idea of the mechanism of what's going on. If those molecules can't be removed and they're still stuck in the receptor that's not allowing you to smell new molecules, maybe that's what's happening inside of the nose. And so maybe that could help develop treatments at some point in time, which is sort of the point of all of these things. Absolutely. I mean, we're going to get in a moment to the potential treatments that are being tested and that we might be able to use to tackle some of this. But before I, I, I kind of, it's it's something we've done many times on CoronaPod before, where we've talked about all the various different kind of angles at which researchers are trying to get to the answer to a problem. There are genetic angles, there's this physiological explanation, there's this potential thing, there's this precedent. And that's very much the way that this kind of research works. We get tidbits from here and tidbits from there, and we put it together to try to form, uh, you know, an understanding which might be able to lead us towards treatments. And there's one more tidbit that I want to mention before we get to those treatments, which is some discussion of why some people might have this long-term smell loss. And that's about structural changes in the brain, right? We know that the brain can adapt and change and what happens to your brain changes based on your experience. And so there are people looking at whether or not if you've had a temporary reduction in smells being able to access to your brain, does that then cause a change in your brain, which can be longer lasting? Tell us about that. Yeah, there was a study that was just again earlier this year in March um, where people looked at hundreds of brain scans and you know it happened that some of the people who had their brain scans the first time didn't have COVID at that point but then by the time they got their brain scanned the second time they had had COVID and so that sets up the perfect ideal situation for an experiment where you can see a before and after and what they saw was that there were multiple changes in the brain and some of them they saw markers of tissue damage in an area called the olfactory center and so what they think is that once you've had this smell loss and there's maybe these damaged cells in your nose and you're not getting a signal into your brain that at some point the brain kind of atrophies right it's not getting that signal and it kind of rewires itself because there's this absence of signal. And that's what they think they're seeing in this particular study. What the researcher said is it's one of the clearest things that we know about this loss of taste and smell. And that really opens the door to one of the most common treatments that people are using. If you're in a situation where perhaps your brain might have rewired to not really react as strongly or react even at all to those signals, even though perhaps the cells in your nose may have recovered after and so on, but your brain has now restructured, People are now suggesting that you can try to combat this by what's called smell training. It seems kind of a bit of a 1.0 treatment, but it does seem to be working for some people. You know, in one of our earlier stories, it was sort of early stages of smell training, and it was something that they were trying for people. And now more recently in this last story that we've done, they have more data because a lot of time has passed. And what they see is that it can help some people, but it mostly works for people who have partial smell loss and not these sort of anosmia or total smell loss that we've talked about. But for those people who have partial smells, it's kind of like reminding your brain how to smell again, right? And so, you know, I've seen pictures of people sitting at a table with like all of these vials of scents in front of them and get kind of a high intensity whiff of a particular smell. And I think that there's some sensory and, you know, psychological cues that go along with that as like just trying to remind yourself, this is what this thing smells like. This is what this coffee smells like. This is what flowers smell like. And just try to remind yourself, but also giving your brain that input and that high intensity whiff 
to kind of, I, I would guess, help rewire it so that it remembers. And you mentioned that this is something that seems to be showing some benefits for people that have potentially partial smell loss. What about people that have this more significant anosmia symptom? So they've lost all of their smell or a really significant part of their smell? Yeah. So for those folks, there's a lot of other things that researchers are doing to test possible treatments. And it's kind of like when we were at the beginnings of COVID and people were just throwing molecules at the problem to see what worked, right? We don't have all of the money and support that went behind finding treatments for COVID because it's affecting a smaller percentage of people. So it's moving a little more slowly, but there are researchers that are testing lots of different things. And some of those are steroids, which reduce inflammation. The thing for steroids is that some of the data hasn't shown like a tremendous amount of positive effect so far. There's a study that we talk about where between the, the people who had the smell loss and a control group, they didn't really see much difference when given the steroids. So the jury is still out on that one. But there are other things that people are trying. One of them that's interesting to me is this place rich plasma. So what that is, is they take your own blood, you know, the, the person who has the smell loss, they take a sample of their blood and they take the plasma part of it, which is the liquid part, and they make sure that it's got platelets in there concentrated down. So platelets are these factors that help heal us when we have a wound. They take that plasma and they actually have tried injecting it into the noses of people who have smell loss which sounds painful, but I'm sure for people who have this condition, they don't mind trying out this treatment. And they have seen in a really limited number of people some benefit where there has been some recovery of smell after trying this treatment. And so, you know, the researchers are very quick to say this is at a very small population of people, like seven people in one study, maybe a few more people in another study. And so they're going to try to expand that into a much larger study starting up soon. I have to say that that platelet-rich plasma treatment, it was so immediately reminiscent of the convalescent plasma studies that happened earlier on in the pandemic and actually are still running to some extent now. You know, they, there really are moments where scientists kind of grab at every possible option. Like, can we use the body's own systems in whatever way we can? If we don't have time to develop a drug, what if the body's already got a way to do it? And let's try to utilize that. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, as I said, right, when, when something like this happens and new disease happens and new condition happens, that's the first thing they try is that. The, you know, the low-hanging fruit is the molecules that are already out there that are approved, the things that we can use a patient's own blood. Um, and sometimes those things work, um, sometimes they don't, but it, it's at least something to try in the, in the interim until, you know, I'm sure at some point scientists might try to design an actual drug or molecule that's specific to this condition once we know more about it. And so that's sort of the scientific process. So it's always interesting to see it play out. Yeah. And in the short term, before we have those treatments, there are some reasons to be, I suppose, hopeful about this particular symptom. One is that it seems that as the virus has evolved, as we've had subsequent variants, this condition seems to be a less common side effect. So whereas it was really, really prevalent with the alpha variant, by the time we get to Omicron, it seems to be dropping quite a lot. That's the really good news. It doesn't help the people who were infected early in the pandemic and still have this smell loss. But for for people now in living in the world as it is now, where we've kind of lifted restrictions and not everybody's wearing masks and people are still worried about getting COVID, 
one good thing is that the prevalence of smell loss has gone down as the virus has evolved. So as you said, when we had the alpha variant, which was sort of the first variant of concern, if you compared the people who got the alpha variant to ones who had the original version, they were 50% as likely to get smell loss. And then it dropped further when we moved to the Delta variant to 44%. And now with Omicron, a recent study this year has shown that it's down to 17% of people compared with people who had had that original version. And so there was a researcher in our story that says, you know, our inboxes are much less full than they used to be. She works at the Monell Science Center, which studies all things about smell in Philadelphia. So I think researchers are relieved, clinicians are relieved, patients are relieved that this is becoming less common. But yeah, you know, there are still people out there that are still suffering from this. And so that's why a lot of people are still doggedly chasing these these treatments and, and trying to find out what's going on. Absolutely. Chasing these treatments. And I suppose we'll just have to watch this space to see how quickly these treatments can be shown to be effective. And as you mentioned, there isn't a ton of funding for this. It's not like the the funding that got thrown at treatments for severe COVID or indeed vaccines. This is something that's being done in a kind of, in more of a standard way that you might expect researchers who are working on a disease. Yes, it's plodding. It's plodding along. You know, the researchers get their preliminary results, then they have to write another grant to get more money and do a larger study and and so on and so forth. And so it's it's not quite the, to use a U.S. term that is now obsolete, it's not Operation Warp Speed. It's much more in the regular framework of, of scientific discovery. Lauren, thank you so much. I'm really interested to see how people react to this story and to this coronapod. If people have questions, then do feel free to send us tweets or emails, podcastonnature.com or at naturepodcast. In the meantime, we'll wait and see how things go. And maybe we'll be writing another story about anosmia, smell loss and so on in the future. For now, let's leave it there. Lauren, thank you so much. Thank you. I will undoubtedly be following this in the future and we will do more stories when there is something to write. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.